Good morning, good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Amos chapter 5, and I'm going to talk for a little bit so you can find it. Uh, if you see Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, just keep going a little bit. There's a cluster of books called uh, The Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve. It's nestled in there. Um, this sermon is a transition from our Advent series in the Psalter back to our regular series that we sort of interrupted during Christmas time in 1 Corinthians. And so one of my favorite parts of Christmas is singing, the music. And so I know that there's various opinions on this, but the most appropriate and godly time to sing Christmas music is between Thanksgiving and New Year's Day. I know, I know. It's true. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. Uh, so, but I had to ease up on a little bit. My, my daughter, uh, when she was about four or five, she was singing a Christmas song in January, and I looked at her, and uh, she knew that what my belief is in that, and she's like, Daddy, shouldn't we sing about Jesus all year? And so I've kind of I've eased up on it a little bit, so I didn't want to see any mixed signals, but uh, some of my favorite uh, Christmas songs are, O Come, All You Faithful, uh, Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and then that great evangelistic song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And so as we transition into 1 Corinthians, I think it's good for us to take a moment to assess if we are truly living in light of these great truths that we sing about and heard about in the Psalter during the month of December. Is it actually becoming a part of our lives? Are we being transformed unto these things? Or is it just lip service? So a great text to lead us through this, as we just read, is Amos chapter 5. And when we look at this text, it's hard to read. It's like one of those moments where you walk into to someone's room, or, and they're getting a whooping by their parents. You, you guys ever do that, did that before? You at your friend's house, they're getting a whooping, you walk in, and it's like, you're just like, oh. Like Homer Simpson on that gif, he just like went back into the bushes. And so uh, I feel like we're just walking in on Israel getting a whooping. But in this passage, we see just how righteous and holy our God is. And this is especially important because we live in a culture of OMG. We live in a culture of Jesus is my homeboy, but God is righteous and he ought to be feared in a healthy and reverent way. So this passage is, is what's called a woe oracle. And uh, it's situated within a prophecy. A prophecy is a message from God communicated to an individual or to a group of people calling them to live in light of God's ways. And in this situation, in particular, marked out in the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And then I'm not really up on the latest fantasy novel or movie, so I'm sure there's some sort of oracle definition floating around out there. But a woe oracle, as we see in this passage, had its origins as a funeral lament. And in today's passage, we're lamenting Israel's spiritual death. And so let's begin by exploring uh, Israel's false hope uh, about the day of the Lord in the verses 18 to 20. Here's how these verses read. It says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you have the day of the Lord? Is it darkness and not light? If, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or, or went into a house and leaned, up, or, and, and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is it not the day of, not the day of the Lord, darkness and not light and gloom, but no brightness in it, or with no brightness in it? And so, surprisingly, this war oracle is addressed to people who actually longed for the day of the Lord. And this is kind of surprising. 
Because usually the message was addressed to God's enemies about the doom that they would receive from God. But today, it's addressing Israel themselves. For Israel, uh, the day of the Lord was a reference to these stories where God, uh, uh, Israel experienced God's saving hand. They grew up hearing stories about Passover. They grew up hearing about the Exodus and about the day of Midian's punishment. And so in this book, Amos is working very hard to let them know that the day of the Lord for them is filled with false hope. This time, they wouldn't be on the side of, uh, of deliverance. They'll be on the side of judgment. So the day will not bring salvation, but darkness, which is what we see in the second half of verse 18. It says that the day of the Lord is darkness and not light, and if you skip down to verse 20, it's, it insists that there is gloom and no brightness in it. This is shocking to Amos' audience. They were expecting that they would be the ones who would be the recipients of God's saving action, but they're really being judged by that action. In verse 19, Amos offers two illustrations of a guy having what my kids would say was the worst day ever. And so this poor guy, he, he fled from uh, a lion only to be chased by a bear. I wouldn't want either of them because, like, whichever direction this guy went, he was doomed. And so on another occasion, there might be a different guy, but there is a guy who was running away from that, something that was presumably dangerous. He gets in the house. He thinks he can rest. He leans his hand up against the wall, and he gets bitten by a snake. This guy just can't get a break. This poor guy... The significance of the day of the Lord is inescapable for Israel. The consequences of this are inescapable. Okay, it could be a bear is coming or a snake's going to bite you. The day of the Lord isn't going to bring about the promise of safety, but their demise. Unfortunately, though, this won't be the last time people will hear that their righteous deeds have not saved them. In Matthew chapter 7, we read Jesus saying these words, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name do, uh, and, and do many mighty works in your name? And, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so in these verses, there's a lot of religious activity, just like we see in our text today. They were doing lots of religious things, but, and, but they're saying, Jesus, we did this and we did that, but they're still very far away from God. This is why I'm so blessed by the gospel today. For those who believe in Christ, salvation is yours. We don't have to worry about if God's going to accept us or reject us. If we're in Christ, we are our new creation. We are our His not because of a list of religious things that we've done. We haven't amassed enough religious activity to, to satisfy Almighty God, but because of Christ's redemptive work on our behalf. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we believe. We cling to Christ and we hide in the shadow of the cross. Salvation is a gift that we receive in exchange, not for a bunch of works of righteousness, because our works are like filthy rags. All we do is offer God our sin, and he gives us his righteousness, and he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. This is good news. We ought not be trying to rest on our religiosity, as we see in Matthew chapter 7, as we'll see in the coming verses. We rest on Christ. 
I pray that each of us are going to be ready for the day of the Lord when it comes for us. That day when we stand before him, it's coming. It's on the calendar. We might not know what day it is, but the question is, whose works are you going to be judged by? Christ's or your own? And I pray that you choose Christ. I know how wicked my own heart is. And so I choose Christ to stand in my place, to be judged for me, to, to bear my wickedness and my burdens. This is what Jesus has done for us. We don't have to fear the day of the Lord. We don't have to fear the fact that we walk into the presence of God and he'll say, oh, you thought this was a good day, but this is really a bad day because of Jesus. This is the truth of the gospel. So let's look at verses 21 to 24 and read about Israel's false worship. It says, I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The main connection between these verses and the previous verses is that there are, they're describing two traditions. The first set of verses is describing the tradition of the day of the Lord and how it's been passed down in Israel's history. And the second tradition that we uh, see here is one of keeping the law. And so, but these both provided false hope for Israel. They believed that their festivals and their sacrifices and their songs of praise would be accepted by God and that God would respond by pouring out blessing on the nation. But in verse 21, it references these annual feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is one of them. Another is the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles. And together, these make up this rich temple tradition in Israel. But notice in verse 21 how he says, I despise your feasts. It's almost as if God is trying to distance himself from what Israel has done to these celebrations that he has given them. In fact, by this point, they had stopped taking the pilgrimage to Jerusalem because it was just too far. It was too often. It required too much. Does this sound similar? Does it sound familiar? Uh, only wanting to give the Lord that which cost us nothing? I'm not talking about uh, David in 2 Samuel 24 when he refused to do that. I'm talking about us. It's too rainy. It's too cold today. Let's stay home. It's been a long week. I want to rest on Sunday morning. I need to find a church that's comfortable for me. It just takes too much energy to go and do all those things. Understand, worshiping God is going to be costly. It's going to cost us. But the joy on the other side of it is unimaginable. The joy that we get from it, from being obedient to the Lord, communing with him, is just a, uh, it's something that we can't even explain. It gets us out of bed when you can't even roll over in the morning. It starts us on our way. It is just such a rich relationship that actually allows us to do this life that God has given us. In verse 22, we see the Lord uh, rejects their sacrifices. In no uncertain terms, Amos announces that their sacrifices have not achieved their intended result. 
They will, be, they will not be accepted. God is going to overlook them. And then uh, we see God also rejects their worship in verse 23 by describing their singing as noise. Some of you guys might be like, wow, God is being kind of petty right now. They were doing the things, weren't they? And then God is responding like this. But, but there's something that's going on here. And, and this, is, this is why God has responded so strongly. is because at its core, worship is about transformation. At its core, worship is about transformation. God knows that our hearts are prone to wonder. So he provided us worship as a means of training our hearts to love him. And a beautiful thing about worship is that we actually become like the thing we worship. So if God's the object, here goes our transformation. We will look more like our Savior. But as you can well imagine, this is a double-edged sword. Our worship can be warped which and undermine the purpose that God has established it for. And this is exactly what Israel did. And if we're honest, this is exactly what we do as well sometimes. Israel had uh, fallen to the prey, fallen prey to religiosity. They did a bunch of stuff in God's name, but they were so numb to God's presence, they didn't even know he wasn't there. So just imagine this. So Stephanie and I, we love to go on our little date nights. So imagine we got our, ourselves a, uh, a babysitter. I, I, I went and made reservations at her favorite restaurant. There was a movie she wanted to see, so you know, I was, we were going to go there and, and watch it. I come home from work one day on, the, on our date night. She's not feeling well, so what do I do? I go ahead and get dressed. I go out on our date. I have me a nice meal, watch a good movie. And then I come home and tell her about the wonderful time I had on our date. What a fool. <laughs> and if any of you do that, we have a couch you can come sleep on. <laughs> but this is what Israel did with God and what we're prone to do. They do a lot in his name, but without him. By the way, I stole that illustration from somebody else, and so I just wanted to be honest. So, uh, <laughs> but it was good, though, right? I mean, I, anyway, so um, Israel's religious activity and our religious activity can become more important than the presence of God. You get that? We can do all these things. We can set up all these good rhythms and patterns and practices in our lives and begin to do them in the power of the Spirit, but eventually we get so committed to the ritual that God just, we just meander away from God and we don't even know. This is exactly what's going on here. And so if God's presence, and not his promises, were the height, uh, the high, of highest importance, then their hearts would become more like God's. If they were worshiping him, not just to get things from him, but to become like him, their hearts would be transformed and they would do God's will. Well, what is his will? It shows us here in verse 24. It says, but let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. For some, this verse sounds like it's out of place in a passage on worship, but what Amos is trying to do is he's building upon the transformative power of worship in this climactic verse. So this year as we sing our, the Christmas hymns, I noticed a theme that I didn't notice previously in a lot of these songs, and it was that because this baby king arrived, all will be well. So here's two songs I'll look at real quick. It came upon a midnight clear. 
as I read some of you guys gonna be singing, but uh, that's fine if you do. It says about Christ's arrival, peace on earth, goodwill to men, from heaven's all-gracious king, the world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. But here's the implication of this. O ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bent, uh, bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. So veiled behind this, these words that were penned in 1849 is the reality that this is during the antebellum period where slavery was the norm in much of the parts of the United States. But here, let's look at A Holy Night as well. And this is, this is more familiar. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt his worth. So that's Christ's arrival. But now here's the implication. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law, and that's not any law, it's the law of Moses. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. So these hymns point to Jesus as the bringer of peace and justice. An implication of this is that God's Old Testament and New Testament people should participate in this work too. So now back to Israel. Evidence that they had not been transformed unto God is their lack of keeping the law. In which the law is an expression of God's, uh, God's character and his love towards us. So in short, Israel picked and chose which parts of the law they wanted to uphold, and God said, no, I'm not having any of this. You either have all of me, or you have none of me. And so God is saying, those who are becoming like me and following my ways will pursue good in the world. This is not an implication of worship. This is a part of worship. The larger context of this book of Amos is that the northern kingdom, it capitalized on the opportunity to uh, have a wealthy merchant class who, uh, in the book says, they, they had winter and summer homes adorned in ivory. I'm not really an ivory guy, I'm more of a granite, quartz, marble at times kind of guy. Uh, they rested their head, Amos says, on silk pillows. I can go for that, but you know. And they drank wine from golden bowls. The true Baptists in the room are mad at the wine, but the real point is the golden bowls. <laughs> the idea is that these people enjoy luxury on top of luxury, but the problem was not really luxury itself, but it was how they amassed their wealth. And so Amos's letter uh, it illustrates that the poor and the needy and those who have no advocate are the ones who are the, they're exploited for unrighteous gain. Amos chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, uh, Amos indicted them by saying this, They sell the, the, the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so, so that my name, or that my holy name is profaned. And he goes on elsewhere in, in chapter 5, verse 11, to say that they levy a heavy tax on the poor. 5.12, they cor uh, corrupt judges, receive bribes to pre prevent justice. 8.13, uh, 
5, they boosted the price of grain by cheating with dishonest scales. And they're, they're like the people uh, that Isaiah spoke about whose hands were lifted to God, but they're full of the blood of the hands of the poor and the needy and the weak. Pastor Devin brought a powerful quote to my attention this week. It, it highlights the fact that God called their worship false because they prayed to God while praying on the weak. The question is, is are we guilty of this too? Are we picking and choosing which parts of Christian obedience we're going to receive? Are we, are we cherry-picking things that we are going to follow? Have we picked and chosen uh, things that we said, this is convenient for me, this is inconvenient for me? Dr. Carl Ellis, he, he often offers the illustration that the Christian faith is like a coin with the A side and the B side. The A side is knowledge, knowing about God, and the B side is ethics. Uh, oftentimes, evangelicals are known for knowing the Bible, but oftentimes there's a vacuum on the side of ethics. But we have to be a people who receive the faith as God intended, as one of both knowledge and action, because there are ethical implications for being a part of God's people. So as Christians, we should have a very theocentric, theocentric understanding that's a God-centric or God-centered understanding of justice. At this point, I thought I'd give you a definition of justice, but because justice, justice emerges from the character of God, it's easiest for me to just tell you the story of the Bible and so we can see it. So if we go all the way back to Eden, uh, I don't think we were actually supposed to know what justice was. I think we were just supposed to enjoy it. We were, we were just supposed to live in a place where peace, shalom reigned and characterized our existence. But then the fall happened and humanity responded unjustly to God and the peace that marked all creation was shattered. And then injustice fractured our relationship with God it fractured our relationship with others and even understanding ourselves and with all creation. Human sin put us in a situation that we were never supposed to be in, a situation where we don't live out God's will towards God and towards others perfectly. And because of this, sadly, brokenness, injustice, and sin marks our relationships. But this is why Jesus is so important. He is the one who absorbs every injustice, and through him, he made uh, a way for us to be right with God. On the cross, Jesus took on our unjust action towards God so we can be his children. The Greek word here is the kaios. It's translated righteousness and justice. And in English, oftentimes we refer to the vertical realities, the vertical implications of Christ's death and resurrection as righteousness and the horizontal as justice. But this distinction has caused some confusion because uh, when we do this, it offers the impression that being just before God and just in our relationships are two distinct things. Both of them come from the atonement of Christ on the cross. Jesus came to make every injustice right, including our unjust actions towards God, our creator, and our unjust treatment towards others. And as an expression of gratitude, believers, as an expression of gratitude, Christians ought to be a justice people. 
Because we have a, a just God who is, is restoring brokenness and sinfulness and injustice as far as the curse is found. And thinking back to last week's sermon, how is it that we uh, uh, serve up a platter so that unbelievers can taste and see that the Lord is good? We worship God by trying our best at least to give a glimpse of this shalom, this peace that God intended from the beginning that we'll see come to fruition in his kingdom. But it's imperative that the entire time, as we're doing this work of justice, that we're declaring that there's a Savior who has not left us in this mess forever. So we have to be those who are demonstrating the gospel and proclaiming the gospel at the same time. I think there's too often folks want to do justice, but they don't proclaim where justice has come from. We have to say, it's Christ that brings about the shalom, ultimately, that we're trying to give you a little glimpse of. And because of that, we work so that the people who don't know Christ can get a little taste of that kingdom. But, and for those who are, who, are, who, are, who are doing this work, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because there's a lot going on down here. It's tough down here, but we know that the Lord is going to save us and not leave us down here forever. So I know that there's a lot of us who come to this conversation with different assumptions and, and if we're honest, the broader cultural conversation about justice causes us some to bristle at this discussion, and others in the room are heavily invested in justice causes. But please know, as your pastor, before God, I'm not trying to wade into cultural, a cultural conversation. I'm trying my best to, uh, to, to say but, that there is a biblical way of understanding this, and the biblical truth uh, that how we worship includes how we treat others, and how we treat others tells us something about our worship. That's what we're after. You see that? I'll, I'll read that again. The biblical truth that how we worship includes how we treat others, and how we treat others tells us something about our worship. And so Christians should be clear on this issue. We are a justice people because we are the people of God, not because we're trying to be culturally appropriate. Not because we're trying to be in vogue, because we actually know the one who is going to make everything right. At the end of the day, it breaks my heart to see a world full of image bearers who have these God-given longings for things to be made right, but they don't know exactly what's wrong, and they don't know how to fix it. As Christians... We found true justice, and we found where true peace come from, and we spent all of Advent singing about him. Let's bear witness to Christ in word and deed. So let's turn our attention to the final section of this passage. It said, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sicketh, your king, and Chiron, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is uh, the God of hosts. So in verse 25, Amos brings uh, uh, to, the, to the fore this question that's assumed to have a negative answer. He asks the question, did the people in Israel in the wilderness only, uh, only bring sacrifices, and the answer is obviously no. They brought sacrifices, but they also tried to walk in righteousness. They tried to be uh, obedient, and they worshiped God with all their hearts. And Amos is now calling his peers to do likewise. In verse 26, Amos concluded that 
They are a generation whose heart is so numb to God's presence that they've begun to worship false gods and didn't even detect a problem. Guys, I pray this is not us. I pray that we, we weren't one that, you know, at one point focused on God, focused on doing the acts of obedience, but then our acts of obedience have become our God, and then God just, we just drift away from him to the point where we've made our own gods, and then we start to worship them, and it just throws everything out of whack. They, they've been so disconnected from God's voice that it's indistinguishable from the seductive whispers of a false god that lead not to life, but to death. And so this results in verse 27, and the spiritual adultery that Israel is uh, doing comes to a head, and they'll be sent away from the promised land beyond Damascus. So there's so much for us to think about here. Uh, There's so much for us to talk about, so many threads in this passage on worship, but I just thought I'd give you five things to sort of uh, think about this week. Four, I think there are five questions. Maybe there's four questions in a statement. So first question is, are we, are we worshiping without God? One of the horrifying prospects of Israel's story is that it can become our story. If our idol made us leave church or stop worshiping, it'd be easy to identify something was wrong, Correct. If your life patterns just drastically change, it'd be obvious to know that something is awry. But the devil is so sly here. He actually kept them in the temple, doing sacrifices, being busy about the stuff that God actually said, but without God. But th- th- that's th- and that's the point. Are we worshiping without God? A question that we have to assess uh, within ourselves. And keep in mind that it is possible to begin something, to begin doing a good work in your worship, in God's strength. But then that becomes just a repetition, a, a, an action, a, a, you know, this, this thing, you, this, this muscle memory. And then you begin to do it in your own strength and not God's. Let's assess ourselves. What are we, what are we worshiping? Or, um, are we worshiping without God? Number two. What is the fruit of your worship? We know that there uh, was a problem with Israel, Israel's worship, because their actions didn't match the character of God. And that's the whole point. Their actions didn't match the character of God, whom they claimed to worship. So the question we have to ask, you know, with this is, uh, how is your worship forming you? Is it causing you to look more like our Savior or something else? We need to search our hearts because many of us worship the idols of bitterness of comfort, of sexual immorality, of materialism, of anger, of partisanship, of addiction, of pride. What is forming us? We have to be able to articulate what that is. And by the way, we can, we can as those who are just fallen, we can have our desires set on our Savior, but then these little things begin to eat away at us. It's, we're human. It's okay. But we have to identify what those things are so that the fruit of our worship truly is godliness. Number three, are you broken over brokenness? For those who don't feel the sting of injustice very readily, it's easy to be frustrated or even impatient with cries of justice. So this is increasingly the case if you're not in regular community with people who are feeling this pressure fairly acutely. 
And, and I'll be honest, it's easy for me as an individual to be distanced from heavy-laden cries of justice these days. I mean, I feel those pressures at times, but the Lord has allowed me to graduate from college. Uh, I, I've been able to um, uh, maintain a job and things like this. And so uh, in many respects, I've learned to navigate the world. And, and because of that, uh, and perhaps for some of you, it can, it can become easy for me to grow numb to the cries of, for justice. And so what, what I would like to, to, to propose is that we need to follow the incarnational model of Christ and enter into the brokenness of real people. So this is, not, this is not some theory that we're bringing in to help us with the Bible. We're following Christ. Be incarnational in our entering into brokenness of real people. And if the Spirit of God is in you, your brokenness, uh, yeah, their burdens will become your burdens. See that works? This is the bearing each other's burdens idea. And please hear me that the action step for this is not to jump on social media and to post about justice and stuff like that. No. The call is that expressions of biblical, God-centered justice are not done in the abstract. They're done with real people. Number four, where do I start? If this aspect of your Christian worship has gone numb, like sometimes I wake up and my arm is like sleep from here on up is all tingly. Uh, if, if God is bringing that sort of limb back to life, it feels weird, but it's great when you get it back. But if God is doing that for you by this Holy Spirit, convicting you of this void in your Christian life, a logical question is, where do I start? Deuteronomy 27, 19 offers some examples of people who are vulnerable to exploitation. The verse identifies the fatherless and the widows and the sojourner, and they're disproportionately vulnerable to people whose desire is to prey on the weak. So my suggestion is for you to be mindful of the vulnerable in your growth group to be mindful of the vulnerable at our church, to be mindful of the vulnerable in your community and interact, ask questions, and listen and meet needs where you're able. In addition, as a church, we have relationships with several ministries around the city where our members are serving, uh, and where you can plug into. If you're interested in that, you can contact Tyler Burton at tyler at idcraleigh.com to, to sort of find a way to worship in this manner. And then fifth and finally, Godly stewardship. So we've talked about this before, at least I have from the pulpit before. But the call to uh, those who have been given much is stewardship. In our culture, it's almost as if people who have been given much need to apologize for it. No, that's not what we need to do. We need to be good stewards of what God has given us on behalf of others and encourage others to do likewise. And so as we wrap up today, We've seen that worship includes our singing. We've seen that our worship to God includes our worship gatherings. And we've also seen that, that, that today that uh, how we treat others is also a part of our worship. And so may it be true of us that we are worshiping in word, yes. Also indeed, yes, to accurately convey and declare the glories of our God that we sing about in all December and that we were so pleased to celebrate on Christmas Day that the Savior of the world has come. Every brokenness that we have experienced, God is redeeming. He's restoring all of this. And because of that, we try to be these little Christ, these Christians that are, are pointing people to him with our words and our deeds. And so may our worship, as we even do these things, transform us 
to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because our worship, it does transform us. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful today that um, we get to worship you. And I pray for those today who are wondering if they're worshiping a false God or Jesus plus something else. Uh, for those who are, who are dependent on their religiosity to appease your wrath, or they're trying to use things like coming to church to, to bind your hand, to do good for them. God, I pray for all of us that we would worship out of gratitude, that we would worship you because you're worthy, that we would worship you because you're glorious and righteous and holy in one day. We'll see you face to face. One day, our existence will be free from sin, free from brokenness, free from any injustice. And God, we know that you're the one who brings us about. So God, we worship you today in spirit and in truth. And we ask you that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help any of us or all of us to understand the, thing, the ways in which and the things that we have brought into worship that are not you. God, I pray that we would, we would want all of you and not just some of you. That we be obedient to all of Scripture, not just the things that are easy for us, God. And those things are costly, but they're an act of worship. But there's joy unspeakable. And I pray that the saints in this room would sense that and understand that. And for those who don't know you, God, I pray that you would show yourself to them in a powerful way. Allow them to know that nothing that they can do is good enough. It's all about Jesus. It's about his death, his resurrection, to die the death that we should have died, to live the life that we should have lived. And God, we thank you for this message of Amos chapter 5. I pray that our worship would truly transform us, and I pray that we would do that even now as we take the supper. We pray all this in your name. Amen.